Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey, everyone. This is episode 20. I have no idea how we got to episode 20, but here we are somehow. <laughs> I've made 20 of these and I can't believe it. And I'm so excited um, that we're here. So thank you so much to everyone who has contributed to this. There is no way I would have been able to do this without the help and support of so many people who have agreed to come on and um, share their stories, share their knowledge, their expertise. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who has um, been on here. And thank you to everyone for your suggestions, your questions. Really, the show would not be um, what it is without all of your input and um, your contributions. So thank you for helping me um, make something for all of us, uh, for all of us to learn from and enjoy. Um, as for this episode today, we have Dr. Rahi Victory. He's a reproductive endocrinologist based out of Ontario, uh, Canada, which is um, north of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, for those of you who don't know. Um, I first heard uh, Dr. Victory speak on Dr. Amy's podcast, Egg Whisper. And then I kind of started following him and I saw that he did these live Q&A sessions. And he usually starts with like some type of research to review and then for about an hour or so he'll take questions live from IVF patients um, and he whatever questions uh, people have um, he answers so um, if you have not seen one of these I really encourage you to head over to his account on Instagram or on YouTube to catch them they're pretty awesome and I believe they are recorded but I think they're going through some renaming process for them right now but um, they are recorded so you can catch previous sessions um, so after seeing all of this, I decided to reach out uh, to him uh, with a super, super tall order. <laughs> I wanted us to go over IVF stimulation protocols because I know for me, at least, these are super confusing and I'll, I'll be honest, I just, I don't understand them all and I don't even know which all exist and um, they seemed somewhat complex and I thought it'd be really great if um, someone could help us break it down. So um, for those of you with low egg quality, he actually goes over some really nice cost-saving effective ways to maybe tackle the issue. Um, and he's just so kind and generous and super patient. I had like a ton of questions and I there's a lot I didn't understand. And so he just, I think this just shows that he really has this like passion and desire to help us all achieve our goals. And I I think you'll see this today in our conversation. Um, so if you always wondered what the heck all these stimulation protocols are all about, this is your episode. Dr. Victory gives you all his secret recipes. Um, you'll want to grab a notepad. He dropped some serious knowledge today. Um, I'm going to need to listen to this a few times to really understand it. And, you know, I sat and put this episode together and I'm still like, oh my gosh, there's so much. Um, so I'm definitely going to go back and listen to it a few times. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, 
episode, please, please, please leave a five-star review or a written review. My goal and mission has always been to help us all get educated on these topics to make our IVF experiences better, even if we can't all have a doctor victory in our lives. Um, so your review will help share this episode with more people who would benefit from this. Um, Dr. Victory, thank you for your tireless efforts to help us achieve our goals. We're so grateful to have someone like you dedicated to our success. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. All right, you guys, welcome back to another episode. Today, we have Dr. Rahi Victory with us, and he's a fertility doctor based out of Canada, and I'm so excited that he's here today. Thank you so much for making time for us, Dr. Victory. Thank you very much for having me. I've really been looking forward to doing this. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Very great opportunity. Yes, thank you so much. I first learned about you actually on Dr. Amy's podcast, The Egg Whisper, and um, you were on her show. And so I ventured over your page and I found that you had all these wonderful resources on there and so much education. And I thought it was a really great reservoir for a lot of us who are wanting to learn more. So thank you, thank you, thank you for putting out all this great information for us. Well, thank you. Um, first, let me say I'm a huge fan of Amy's for friends. Um, and uh, I love her and, and the work that she does. We're very like-minded philosophically. So um, I love, uh, you know, seeing her posts and her work. She's great. Um, I kind of uh, similarly started our program because we were really frustrated with uh, seeing that a lot of fertility centers were letting patients or guiding patients into doing um, procedures or tests or treatments that really didn't have a lot of science behind them. And so I said, you know, we should really address this by telling people the truth. So we started it off by just wanting to help everybody and make sure that we could make their journey more successful, but at the same time, um, hopefully cheaper too. It was always kind of in the back of our minds to to make this a, a better and more efficient experience for everyone. So it started with that and then it kind of grew into people asking us questions and we thought, why don't we be the only group that actually answers questions live? So it keeps me on my toes because yeah. I get some crazy questions every once in a while, but we love doing it and, and it's been wonderful because people all over the world will write us back and say, hey, we tried what you said and it worked. And so it's been really yeah. rewarding to do. So uh, yeah, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, no, I think it's really, and I found that there are a lot of um, IVF patients who are really, really sharp. I don't know how they know the stuff they know, <laughs> but they do. And so I get some of these questions that are submitted to the show and I'm like, I don't even know what that is. That's like, that sounds like it's so crazy. So I'm like, I can see how you get, you stay on your toes and kind of have to keep up on everything. So uh, yeah, thanks for keeping us on our toes too and teaching us more about, you know, any of the stuff that's new that's coming out and that sort of thing. Because there is, I do find that um, there are certain people that kind of, or certain groups that maybe stray away from the stuff that's not conventional. And, 
You know, I think that sometimes is hard. I mean, obviously, you want some data to back it up. You don't want to just be like a total cowboy and go, you know, nuts. But I think it's wonderful that you um, kind of keep that in mind in helping your patients and kind of are, aren't just at, you know, the cookie cutter kind of stuff to do. So I, th- I think that's super helpful. I, I love that you said that because one of our common catchphrases is that we're making babies, we're not making cookies. So, um, <laughs> I very much don't believe in cookie cutter medicine. I really believe fertility, perhaps almost more than anything, needs to be individualized because no two patients are the same. Everybody's physiology is just that little bit different. And if you practice cookie cutter medicine, it's a really good way to get rich and a really bad way to take care of patients. And I'm not really interested in getting rich. I'm much more interested in taking care of patients. So we really focus on what are the details of your case? What makes you unique? What makes you different? How can I best adapt what I know and what I do to making your journey specifically tailored to you? Because that's where we find those little nuances, those little tweaks that actually make all the difference. And then all of a sudden you see it all kind of clicks into place and the patients get pregnant. So I love that you said that because that's like one of my favorite phrases on our show. So that's great, yeah. Yeah, so so how did you get into fertility? How'd you decide fertility is the space for me? Oh boy, um, okay, so this is actually kind of a funny story. So. I love doing laparoscopic surgery. I have a very roundabout story for getting into fertility. So I love doing laparoscopic surgery. I'm I'm an expert in all minimally invasive surgeries and there's very few things I can't do um, with minimally invasive surgery. But in Canada, you cannot make a living being a minimally invasive surgeon. It just doesn't pay anything. Um, And there's no OR time, so that was not helpful either. So I knew I would be able to do a lot of the fertility work or or the surgery work I wanted within the realm of seeing fertility patients because a lot of them need that minimally invasive surgery. And I thought, well, I can help people out a lot surgically and I can do some fertility work. And I really enjoyed the fertility work. But once I got into it, I still have a huge passion for the surgery but I realized my true love really is helping all these fertility patients. And so I kind of transitioned over from wanting to be this surgical nut to being a fertility nut instead. (laughs) um, Yeah, we just kind of grew our practice and it's just really been explosive year after year. We've grown so much, um, especially since we started doing a lot of social media stuff. Um, you know, the work there has really garnered a lot of attention and, and people like seeing physicians and teams of healthcare workers that are interested genuinely in helping them. I think there's a lot of um, what I call fertility fatigue, where people are tired of, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing over and over again. And why aren't they changing things? Why aren't they listening to me? A lot of people just want to be heard. You know, I, I read this, what do you think, doc? Or I saw this, or my friend did this. What do you think? And and there's so much dismissal out there. And so many kind of, I always say, you know, 90% of doctors have a personality disorder. They just think they know best and aren't willing to listen. And I never want to be that guy. I actually want to be the guy that sits down, hears what you have to say, listens to you, processes it and thinks, okay, you know, how does this apply and and what can I do to help this person their way on their journey? So 
Um, it, it's been a, a wonderful road to travel because I get to kind of walk hand in hand with so many different people on their path. And, and I love that because it's kind of fun for me to see how everybody wants to adapt and what everybody needs specifically for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. You're like singing my song because I I mean, there's like so many of us like even when, so when I do like my warrior story interviews and I talk to IVF patients, so many of us have said the same thing again and again, where we say, you know, we had this concern. We voiced our concern and we were dismissed so many times. And then it got to the point where finally it became a big bigger problem. And finally, someone said, oh, yeah, maybe you were right. And we're like, we've been trying to tell you that this has been bothering us and nobody's listening, you know, so it really means so much to us when people like you, Dr. Amy, Dr. Murphy, like there's so many that are really wonderful that do take the time to listen to us and are open minded. And, you know, it when tip, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but when I bring a question or something in and I want to talk about it, it's I'm not challenging, you know, the physician in front of me. I, I just want to know more. Is this helpful? I'm just trying to find out more information, you know, and that's that's it. And and so I don't know if sometimes there is that perception that, you know, they're being challenged other not you, obviously, but I'm just saying other physicians, if maybe they feel like they're being challenged. And so they're not quite as receptive. And part of it may be the approach from the patient side. You know, if you approach it, it's like, hey, I just want to learn more then maybe from both sides, people can kind of grow from that experience together. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I uh, you know, I actually I like being challenged. So mm-hmm. first of all, um, challenging me means I got to stay on my toes. I got to know my stuff. I got to read constantly. I've got to, you know, focus on my own education round the clock 24 seven. So for me, that's reading six different journals every day to see if something new came out that day and they posted it ahead of time. Um, I scan, you know, all the scientific literature. I go to conferences. I actually take my whole team to conferences when we can. So, um, you know, there's a lot of education that you have to do for yourself. And I think as a physician, the minute you kind of close down to what the patients are trying to tell you, it's the minute you've really lost your whole purpose in doing this. The purpose is to heal people. And how can you heal people if you're not listening to them, right? You're never, you're never going to really heal people if you're kind of pounding into them your idea of what's right and wrong or, or your idea of what's best. Everybody's different. Everybody deserves individualized care. And of course, everyone deserves to be listened to. It doesn't matter how outlandish, you know, or how rational what they're suggesting is you got to listen and and being challenged is good. I mean, I've learned from being challenged, right? The whole the whole letrozole protocol that I favor now and think is wonderful was actually brought to me by a patient. I had never heard of it. I hadn't seen it. It wasn't on my radar. And I said, you know, they brought it to me and I said, you know, I'm going to look this up. And I looked it up and I realized, wow, there's a ton of evidence for this. And we started it about two or three years ago. But At that point, I realized, wow, you know, I'm learning from my patients. And that's a good thing. Any doctor that doesn't want to do that, they're just impeding not just their growth, but the success of all their patients as well. And that that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, and let's kind of talk because you have kind of a unique training and background, right? You trained both in the U.S. and in Canada. So you did where which part of your training did you do where? So med school and residency in Canada, 
And residency in OBGYN in Canada is a little different from the US. The US mm -hmm. has a lot of like kind of primary care for women built into being an OBGYN, like kind of well woman care. We don't do that in OBGYN residency in Canada. It's just five years instead of four of like hardcore, you just live and breathe OBGYN. Um, and then uh, I went to the US and did a American board fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So I'm actually board certified and licensed in the US and in Canada as well. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a good opportunity because I got to see the best of what the U.S. had to offer and the best of what Canada had to offer. And I kind of pulled from those two and put them into my own program to kind of make a unique blend. And then, of course, I got rid of all the bad stuff from both sides yeah. so, that, <laughs> yeah. so that we'd have a really clean, elegant um, and sophisticated program that really took the hallmark features of what the you know socialized system in Canada has, but added some elements of the American system that you don't want to go without. And so, yeah, it's been it's been a great opportunity, and we're on the border, so it's really easy for American patients to get to us. We're twenty minutes from the Detroit airport. Oh, okay, wow, yeah. And so, do you find, or what do you think is beneficial from the American system and what do you think is beneficial from the Canadian like what's the difference what do you find are like the things that you're like okay these are the things that I really want to keep and these are the things that I'm like oh not so great because I mean you have a unique perspective you you can see both types of healthcare um systems that exist and I think that's so unique because I only know one <laughs> like so but and you get to experience both yeah for sure so um, I think the biggest difference is that the American system, in my mind, is very um, financially driven and it's a lot about, you know, what's best for the clinic and not necessarily always what's best for the patient. It's very client driven. It's service oriented. You know, let's get people in. Let's get them to do IVF. That's their best success rate. Um, that's our biggest profit margin. Um, you know, everybody wins. More patients are getting pregnant. We're making more money. Let's drive people into that. And it's a whole kind of, um, you know, industry designed around let's capitalize on on this healthcare issue and kind of drive people into what's, you know, admittedly best for them but at the same time limits their choice, limits their, their options, um, and limits real communication between the physician and the, the patient because you're not really outlining everything for them. On the flip side of that, you know, the, the good part about it is being really client-oriented means they do provide very good levels of service hopefully, not always, but in most clinics, you know, they're maximizing their opportunity to provide you with the care you want. You need someone to answer your phone call, there's someone there right away. You wanna be seen, you're gonna get seen in a week or two. Um, you know, in Canadian systems, uh, we've kind of changed ours, but in many Canadian centers, you're waiting months to see the doctor. Um, you know, the doctor can't necessarily call you back. And so I kind of pulled from all of that and said, we don't want a system that's financially driven because I 
don't care about the money. I want to help people. And so we didn't design our program around, you know, maximizing IVF. We designed our program about maximizing your choices, maximizing your options, educating you about, hey, you can do A, B, C, or D. Here are your chances with each one. Here are the risks and benefits with each one. Here are the costs with each one, right? And then we focused on making sure we still provided that same level of American client satisfaction and customer service, um, but managed to do it in what I think is a little bit more of a humanitarian format where you recognize the fact that infertility is, is traumatic for patients. And you got to recognize the fact that they've lost control and you need to restore that control back to people. And the best way to reduce their trauma is to, to give them options, to give them choices, to give them knowledge, and then say, you're back in control now. What can we do for you to make this a good experience for you? You know, what do you need to know to help make a good decision for you? Not, I think you need to do this, but rather, you know, here are your choices, here are your options, here's what to expect from it. Um, we got a whole team set up for you, no matter what you choose, let us help you on your journey. And so that's that's really what we aimed for. And, and I think we kind of hit the bullseye on that one because that's exactly what we do every day for every patient. Yeah, no, that's so true. Like as someone who's gone through four cycles now, it like you really do feel like you have zero control over anything because it's all like... It's all out of your hands, you know, like you can't, I mean, as much as you want to try, you can take supplements and things like that. And, you know, but once the egg is out of your body, it's sitting in the lab and you're waiting for your blast report and stuff. It's like you, you don't know what to do. And then the next time you're like, well, what do I do? How do I, how do I make this better? And so this is why we're going to talk about the protocols, the stimulation protocols, because sometimes we feel like, oh, well, do we need to change our protocol or, and then like, what's even, what should we even be looking at? And I remember my very first cycle, I was given this like bucket of meds, right? Like you get this box of medications like shipped to you. I don't know what's what. I just know I'm supposed to inject. I followed the instructions. They said, number one, do this. And so I was like, okay. So I followed my instructions. I have no idea what they did. I injected a bunch of stuff into my body when I was told to, and that is all I know. So I thought it was important that maybe for some of us who are even, you know, a few cycles in may still have no idea what these medications do. And so I'm wondering if we can kind of talk about that. I, I know there are a few medications that uh, are kind of mostly the same across the board. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. There are gonadotropins, GnRH antagonists, agonists, HCG, progesterone. Can you talk a little bit about each and their function? I know it's a long list. That's totally fine. Um, in like this, like for a four-year-old, <laughs> like explain it like a four-year-old would need to hear it. Sure. So uh, the gonadotropins are basically the signal or the message that your brain sends to your ovaries to tell them to make eggs. So it's a little horm steroid hormone. It floats down out of your brain. It lands on the ovary and the ovary says, oh, I need to start growing an egg. And the more of that that you give, the more eggs the ovary hopefully can produce. So those are really FSH and LH. And uh, predominantly it's FSH that's really making the eggs grow. Although now as we learn more, we also know that LH is necessary 
in the majority of patients as well, a little bit. So um, that's the basic part, you know, for the four-year-old version, it's, yeah. you need to, you know, you need to order a pizza, you send a call, you know, to the pizza place. Yes. This is literally the phone call, right? So, you know, you're just saying, hey, I need an egg. So this is the signal you send to get the egg to be built. And, and if you want, you know, a lot of it, you send a lot of signal. Um, GnRH. Oh wait, sorry. Let me back up a little. And which oh, medication? Yeah. Which yeah. medications are those? Oh, so um, these would be examples. Would be things like uh, Gonalef, Menapur, Recavel, um, Luveris. Um, you know, Pergonol. I mean, they they go on and on. Puragon, mm -hmm. Brevel. There's a, a whole laundry list of okay. them, right? But these are the injections that your doctor would give you to stimulate your ovaries to produce more eggs than you would normally produce. Because normally a woman's producing one egg every month, and so we want to take advantage of the fact that a whole bunch of eggs line up for this race every month to see who's first. And you know, the champion is the one that releases, but all those other eggs can also get there if you kind of push them along. So pushing them is giving them these shots and the shots are FSH or LH. And, and that's examples, like I said, are the, those meds that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Okay, keep yeah. going, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, that's okay. Um, so then a GNRH antagonist um, and an agonist. So I got to explain that first. So um, there's a higher level in your brain that actually sends out the signal that tells you to send the signal to the ovaries in the first place. So that higher level signal can also be manipulated. So if you want to prevent your ovaries from releasing an egg before it's too soon, you need to use either an agonist or an antagonist, a GnRH agonist or antagonist. So the antagonist would be things like um, uh, cetratide or orgolutran. Those are the more common ones in North America. Um, the agonist would be things like uh, Lupron, um, Suprafact, uh, Trellstar. There's a whole bunch of different names for them. Um, so they work quite differently. The antagonist is daily. Um, the agonist can be daily or you can take it like in month long or even three month long depot versions. Um, and so the agonist, you usually start before you start taking your shots to grow your eggs. And the antagonist you take after you've already started your shots to grow the eggs. Just because their mechanism of action is a little bit different. More and more worldwide, physicians have kind of um, aimed more towards using the antagonist cycle. And the reason for that is that in women that can make a lot of eggs, you can reduce their chances of developing this relatively harmful condition called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome where they make too many eggs and your belly fills up with fluid and you get all bloated and feel horrible. Um, if you use the antagonist protocol and you use a GnRH agonist trigger, you can basically eliminate the chances of developing OHSS. And so more and more they're pushing us towards use the antagonist protocol and then use a GnRH agonist trigger or a double trigger where you use a little bit of HCG 
with the agonist, you eliminate the OHSS, but you get really good outcomes in terms of egg quality, egg maturity, um, embryo quality, and so on. So most people worldwide now have moved towards using the antagonist protocol. There are some instances where we don't work on that, and we can certainly talk about that um, uh, later on. But yeah, th those are the main differences between those two. Um, and then HCG is the pregnancy hormone. So you can actually use it to trigger the release of eggs. So HCG and LH are very similar um, in their structure. And so LH is what naturally makes you release an egg. And so if you give someone HCG, your brain doesn't really know the difference and, and it'll trigger the same response and, and make you release an egg. And then progesterone is the hormone that's super important for supporting the pregnancy. So in a natural cycle without any meds or hormones or anything, a woman starts making estrogen as her egg grows. She releases the egg and the little cyst that's left behind in the ovary produces progesterone to make the lining of the uterus a really happy place for the embryo to land. So you need that progesterone to keep the lining of the uterus supportive for the pregnancy. So when we're doing fertility cycles, because we're inhibiting or blocking your ability to release the eggs naturally, you need extra progesterone. And so you have to take some so we can give it to you either orally, which doesn't work well at all, vaginally, which has multiple different forms, or the horrid oil shots, which everybody hates, but they're actually necessary because all the studies show they're better. So that's why we use the progesterone. It's to mimic what your body would naturally do. We're trying to make the same exact thing that your body would do naturally, but we have to give it to you because we're messing around with your hormones so much. You won't do it on your own unless we help. Mm -hmm. And then so during these protocols, we usually get blood drawn. So what does the blood work tell you? Well, depending on what they're drawing, you're looking at things like your estrogen level to make sure that it's rising appropriately because the more eggs you have, the higher your estrogen level goes. And so we're trying to make sure that your estrogen is rising appropriately. You're also monitoring for your LH levels because your LH levels will tell you if your eggs are getting close to the point where they're gonna release and you don't wanna prematurely release. So. Okay. A lot of patients don't understand this, but your brain has no idea how many eggs you're making. It only knows how much estrogen is there. And in a normal cycle, like a normal natural cycle, your estrogen levels are relatively low. So when you start stimulating the ovaries to produce multiple eggs, you're gonna reach that same natural level of estrogen way earlier than you would normally. Mm -hmm. And so your brain looks at it and says, oh, I've got an estrogen level of 500 or 400 or 1000 or whatever the level is. Okay, it's time to release the egg. So it sends out that LH signal because it's, it thinks that you've got one great big egg there instead of four small ones or five small ones. And so what we're doing is blocking that signal from releasing and so in order to do that, you have to use that agonist or antagonist protocol. So, you know, it's really important to measure the levels so that you know you're not about to release the egg. You're not going to get too much LH growing or, or developing because that's going to 
throw everything off. If you get your LH releasing too early, that cycle is is done. You can't continue with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I know I, I was looking through, because um, I was like, what are the different protocols that exist? Because everyone's like talking about these protocols. I don't know anything about them, but I found that there are four. <laughs> I don't know if this is true. You'll have to tell me. I found that there are, there's an antagonist protocol, a long agonist protocol, um, a microdose flare protocol, um, and a minimal stimulation protocol or mini IVF. Do you mind kind of talking about, is it true? Are these true, the four main protocols, or is that a lie? Or did I just lie? Um, I definitely think, yeah, yeah, no, no, no lie at all. Um, that's a really good summary, actually. So uh, there are lots of protocols. These are definitely four of the more common ones. Um, there's all sorts of different ways to, to do IVF, and, and everybody has their, their own way. But these are definitely the most common ones in use right now. Um, maybe I'd throw in natural cycle IVF in there as well, but, but I'll go through them all. So, um, so an antagonist protocol is exactly what I was referring to earlier. So basically you start taking your medications to grow your eggs. You get to a point where either the egg size or the estrogen level has reached a point where you think, boy, I better stop the eggs from releasing, you know, too early. So you start this antagonist, which will block your brain's ability to send that release signal. And then you can keep growing the eggs without worrying about prematurely releasing them. You wait till they're ready and then you trigger the release of the eggs. And usually 35, 36 hours later, you're doing your egg retrieval or your IUI, depending on what kind of cycle you're in. In a long agonist protocol, you're actually looking at it and saying, you know, I don't want to risk the chance that the eggs are going to release too early. Maybe I don't get the timing exactly right. I'm going to start my medication before we ever get started so that I know that there's very low chance that the eggs can release prematurely. So this is, you know, what I like to refer to as dinosaur medicine because Really, very few people are using this now. This is a very old protocol. This is how they they did IVF originally, and it's no longer done. Um, so we don't do that anymore. Um, nowadays, what we do is focus mainly on doing that antagonist protocol instead, or one of the other protocols. Um, so then the other option is to do the microdose flare. So this one takes a little bit of explaining. Um, Microdose flare is where you use Lupron, but in really tiny doses early, early in the cycle. And what it does is actually kind of force your eggs to grow really well. So this is typically used in women that have very weak ovaries where you want to kind of try and maximize the number of eggs you can get because the more you get, the better you're gonna do and the more chances you have. So if you get someone who only has, let's say three to six eggs and you wanna make sure each and every one of those grow, you would use this microdose flare protocol because it's basically designed to kickstart the ovaries and jumpstart them into action. Um, so you're, you're capitalizing on the fact that Lupron, which is the drug that's used, um, initially has the ability to really stimulate the ovaries And then if you use it in high doses, it can actually suppress them. But if you keep the dose really low, 
and you give a little bit every day, you can keep kind of nudging the ovaries forward and get that strong response you want. And what class of medication is Lupron? That's a GnRH agonist. Yeah. Yeah. So the antagonist would be the cetratide and the, and the um, Orgolutran. Um, Lupron, Trollstar, uh, Superfact, um, these are all of the agonists instead that, that a lot of people use. So minimal stimulation is uh, primarily European. So um, in America, people don't necessarily realize that in, European, in, in Europe, um, they don't like doing IVF the same way we do. So we like to, you know, it's like going to any kind of place in North America, everything is big sizes, right? So um, we like lots of eggs. In Europe, they don't like lots of eggs. They like really low doses, very minimal kind of medium, minimal stimulation. So minimal stimulation is still done with an antagonist protocol. So you're still using your cetratide or your Orgolutran. But instead of giving people tons and tons of medication to try and get a, you know, whatever number of eggs you're going to get, they actually say, you know what, we don't need tons and tons of medication because there are studies that show that you don't need a ton of eggs. And whether you give someone 300 units of gonalef and menopure or you give them 150 units of gonalef and menopure, you can actually end up with the same number of eggs. And there are lots of studies that have shown that there isn't that much of an advantage to getting that many more eggs. So minimal stimulation is the idea that you don't have to make people spend a fortune in drugs to get a decent outcome. You can actually give them less and still get a decent outcome. So it's, it's very contrary to our North American way of life where bigger is better um, because everybody thinks I need 20 eggs. You actually don't need 20 eggs. You need one really good one, right? So um, if we can get that with less drugs and less cost and less trauma to your body, there's nothing wrong with doing that. So we don't do in our practice a lot of mini stim because you do still want a reasonable number of eggs. But I also don't try and, you know, kind of attack people with huge doses of drugs to try and get 50 eggs from them because that's useless. You don't need to do that. The only other protocol is to actually do natural cycle IVF. And I really think that's underused and undervalued in, in North America. So there are women where you can give them hundreds of units of all this super expensive medication and you don't actually get a result. It just doesn't work. They're still going to make one or two eggs. Well, I can give you virtually no medication and still get one or two eggs. So we do that quite a bit for the patients where they're struggling, they're not result, they're responding well to a high dose medication protocol. So we go, you know what? Let's give you virtually nothing. We'll give you like a, a tiny, tiny amount just near the end to keep the eggs growing and, and prevent them from releasing. We get one or two eggs, we turn them into embryos. They almost always turn into beautiful embryos. And then you implant them and it gives them a really reasonable chance. And we keep our costs for that ridiculously low because we know we're helping patients that are already struggling. So that's a great option also. Is that better for people who have like low AMH or low ovarian reserve? Is that when you would normally do that? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly who it's good for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I have to write that down. Yeah. <laughs> 
Those are the, those are the ideal patients. They've got low AMH. You know, they tried something before. They took loads of medication. It cost them thousands of dollars. They're frustrated. They're emotional. And, you know, they didn't get what they wanted out of it. So you can turn around and say, look, instead of spending fifteen or $20,000 on your meds and your IVF cycle, you know, we do it for like 6000 Canadian, uh, which is, I think, like 50 bucks US these days. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, we can go ahead for 6,000 Canadian and you only need about 500, 600 Canadian worth of medication too. And you get these beautiful embryos. And so it kind of washes away all that stress and frustration and, oh my God, all these shots. And if it doesn't work, I spent, you know, five grand on medication. I don't need people to spend five grand on medication. Let's just pour it all into getting you one good embryo. So, and, and pour in a lot less doing it. Yeah. No, and I think, I mean, that might be good too for some people who are low on financial reserves because I've gotten some messages from people too who said, you know, I've done this many cycles. I'm not quite ready to give up and do donor eggs or anything like that. But, you know, a traditional cycle is really expensive. What else is out there? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I knew. Um, but it sounds like this might be an option that they could do a natural cycle. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic option. It works really well. And the nice thing about it is it's, it's virtually stress-free. Like patients don't like jabbing themselves, not just because it's the jab, but because it's emotional every time. It's, it's reminding you of that infertility trauma that I was mentioning earlier. And, you know, being repetitively traumatized is certainly not a good thing. So where we as the physicians or the fertility team can minimize that trauma for you, it's a more positive experience and reducing your stress has a huge impact in your success rate. So we love that because I, I'm doing more for less. And how can you go wrong when you're doing more for less, right? So, so that's great. It's a nice approach for a lot of patients. Um, I've heard a little bit, and I have no idea what this even means, but I've heard a little bit about dual stem. Like, what is dual stem? Okay, so... Um, your your menstrual cycle is broken up into two parts the first half so kind of like day 1 to 14 is called the follicular phase and the second half which is like 14 to 28 let's say is called the luteal phase so in the follicular phase that's called follicular because you're growing your egg your follicle and then you release the egg and the luteal phase is called luteal because the progesterone releases and it, it actually causes what's called luteinization of the lining. So um, typically, because we knew from the beginning of IVF that the egg grows in the first half, the grand, I think now great grandfathers of IVF said, you know what, we should do what the human body does and make the eggs grow when they're supposed to grow, which is in that first half. So for, you know, 50 or 60 years, people have always started when you started your period or shortly after you started your period, start taking your shots, make the eggs grow, kind of make them release around the time they would normally release, go collect them and, and now you've done your cycle. Someone came along and said, hey, wait a minute, there's a whole bunch of these smaller eggs lying around when we go to do all your ultrasounds and your egg retrievals. 
we can't use them because they're too small to use. They're not mature enough to use yet. What if we just kept giving you drugs or waited a couple of days and then started giving you drugs? What happens if we go and we collect those eggs in that luteal phase of your cycle? So they started doing stimulations in that second half of the cycle. And so they call it duostim because you're getting stimmed twice in one month. And what they found is that the embryos that they get from the second half are actually better than the embryos than they get from the first half. So this has turned the IVF world on its head because what we always thought was really good actually doesn't appear to necessarily be the best thing every time. So then you would do the follicular phase, egg retrieval, and then yeah. keep going, and then like just keep going, don't change anything, and then retrieve again? Yeah, so you, you do need to change a few things a little bit, but basically you, you do your normal stimulation, you grow your eggs, you trigger the release, you go in and you retrieve them. In the studies that have looked at this, they then wait five days. They don't give you any meds during those five days. And then they repeat your stimulation. And then you go back and you retrieve another batch of eggs after whatever number of days it takes to get those stragglers that weren't kind of coming along initially to grow and get to the point where they're mature. So you go after those ones and they actually, it does work. Like they turn into absolutely amazing embryos. We've been doing it here for quite some time now. It was one of the earliest papers we presented on fertility factor fiction and uh, people really warmed to it. They loved the idea. And then you're really doing it for the patients who can't make a lot of eggs. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now back to our episode. And so what we did was we said, look, let's make this cost effective for people instead of charging them double. Um, we're going to charge them less for that second cycle. So we dropped the price about 37% for our second cycle. So people are really getting two cycles for like one and two thirds of two cycles. Um, so people love it because they're getting more eggs, more embryos and better quality for less money than they'd have to spend doing it twice. So the trigger from the first half of the cycle doesn't affect the eggs for the second half? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So I, I was terrified when I did it the first time because I was wondering that same thing, thinking, how is this going to work? But um, generally speaking, no, it does not. So if you, um, especially if you trigger with the GnRH agonist, like the Lupron, um, it doesn't linger long enough to cause a problem with, uh, you know, with a release of the other eggs that are growing. Um, we have had one case where the second batch of eggs seemed to release prematurely on us, um, but there are ways to try and avoid that from happening. And, and we use those, um, but it was actually the only case and I've probably done maybe 50 of these now or 60 of these now. So uh, yeah, it, it works really, really well, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, so sometimes too, I see that we, that there are folks that do priming. So can you explain priming? Cause you could do it with like birth control pills. You can do HGH priming, right? Like what, what's priming and what can you use to prime? <laughs> sure. Um, so priming is the idea that uh, if you think of your eggs growing as a race, like a, a running race, and every little individual person in the race is an egg, priming is the idea that you want to first, you know, put up lots of ads to get lots of people to show up for the race. And then instead of having them line up kind of behind one another, you want to line them all up at the same start line. So that way, when they start running, you're going to get the most number of people to be kind of close to the finish line at the same time, instead of starting them kind of sequentially one behind the other, because then, you know, obviously the guy in the back has a really hard time catching up, right? So priming is the same idea with eggs. You want all your eggs kind of lined up at the start so that when you start trying to make them grow, you're not getting three that are mature and five that didn't quite make it, you're getting maybe six or seven that are mature and maybe one that didn't quite make it. So um, there are many different ways to prime. Uh, the oldest of them was just estrogen priming. Um, there are still some people that do that. I don't, but some people do. Um, more and more it's DHEA or testosterone priming because we've realized that those actually can be really beneficial. In particular, DHEA, which is a male type hormone, um, what we call an androgen, that actually has been shown to improve live birth rates. So more and more people have switched to that. Um, HGH or human growth hormone, um, people call it Sizin or Omnitrope, there's different names for it. Um, that was really big for a while because we thought it helped. Turns out it increases the number of mature eggs that you get, but it doesn't actually increase the live birth rate. So <clears throat> I will use it when I'm trying to get more mature eggs for someone that didn't have that many that were mature, but I never use it on first try. It's expensive and the, this evidence just isn't there for saying that this is going to work for sure. Do you ever combine things for priming? <clears throat> um, rarely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's very, usually very one. Rare. Yeah. Typically these days I'll use DHEA, but you need three months to do it. So if you're in a rush, you can use testosterone because you only need a couple of weeks to do that. Um, same thing with estrogen. You only need a few weeks to do an estrogen prime. Um, it's rare that I would combine DHEA and estrogen or testosterone and estrogen. There's no studies demonstrating that that's beneficial. Mm -hmm. So would you ever, I'm trying to think now, would you ever prime and do stim? Because in theory, if they're all starting off at the same time, then they should all be the same size. You won't have a lead follicle, right? Is that right? Yeah, so um, so that's a great question. I'm really happy you asked that. So turns out, <clears throat> and they learn this with Duostim, that eggs actually grow in waves. 
So you'll have an initial wave of eggs that come along and kind of grow and develop, but behind them, there's that second wave, just like being at the ocean and the waves come in one after another. Eggs are the same way. You've got a, an initial group of eggs that are gonna line up for the race. And then kind of too far back to line up right away is another group of eggs that's gonna grow. So even if you prime those guys, they're like, no, no, we wanna show up for race number two. So you can't get those ones to grow with priming. Um, so, you know, we always say uh, some of your eggs are couch potatoes. They're kind of sitting there with the bag of, uh, you know, or box of Pringles or can of Pringles and, and Netflix is on and they don't want to get off the couch to join the race, yeah. right? So those are the ones you got to nudge with priming. Like they're kind of sitting on the sidelines. Um, and not really willing to join. But the other ones are like at home waiting for the two o'clock and you're lined up for the 10 o'clock kind mm -hmm. of thing. Okay. So we do use priming with duo stim almost always because the duo stim patients are the ones with weaker ovaries. So those are the ones you want to prime. But it, the priming is only working for that follicular stim, the first stim. It doesn't work for the second one. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the majority of my listeners, although this is changing a little bit, so we can kind of talk a little bit about that, but let's say 35 to 40, um, and then 40 plus, and then let's say um, under, under 35. So 40 plus, um, which protocols do you like to use for your 40 plus patients? Um, so again, I love to individualize. Um, I would say that there are, it's easier to tell you which protocols we don't use. We would never use a long protocol like the downreg pro protocol because they get too suppressed when you do a downreg protocol. And they're, you know, it's kind of like putting the ovaries to sleep. And then when you go to like shake them awake, they're like, uh, yeah, I don't feel like waking up right now. Right. So they're not going to respond very well. So those patients generally will do well with a microdose flare protocol, or if their ovaries are a little stronger with an antagonist protocol. So typically for us, we're focusing on those two. If they're really weak, again, those are the ones where the mini stim or the natural are great options for you. 35 to 40, there's a huge variety. So some of the women are amazing and they've got these gangbuster ovaries where you can use the antagonist protocol because they're gonna make like, you know, 20 eggs. For example, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, right? They might be 35, but their ovaries didn't get the memo that they're 35 because they're still making eggs like a 22 year old. So those ones, you can use an antagonist protocol and actually you should use an antagonist protocol. Um, or, or a mini stim, again, those would be reasonable. If you're 35 to 40, but you've got weaker ovaries, again, you're looking for the protocols we use for the weaker ovaries. So you might want to try the microdose flare or you might want to try the, um, you know, again, the antagonist is reasonable. Some people will use letrozole. Some people will use Clomid. There's a whole bunch of these different kind of mini stim type protocols that try and push the ovaries to make a bit more than normal. Under 35 unless something strange is going on, like you've got, you know, diminished ovarian reserve, weak ovaries, premature ovarian failure, those sorts of things. For those patients, the average ones that are just kind of 
strong ovaries, everything's okay. Maybe it's their partner that's the problem. Maybe their tubes are blocked, something like that. They should all be on the antagonist protocol because you want to protect them from the high levels of estrogen that they can get and developing that ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So they should all be on antagonist because that gives you the most control, the most preventative action for you know, keeping them safe and keeping them healthy. Mm -hmm. I happened to see one of your YouTube videos on stimulation and egg quality, because that's one of my problems too. My AMH is really bad at zero point. Well, it's not really bad. There are worse ones, but it's at 0.5 and I have terrible egg quality. I Like I get one blast every time and they come back genetically abnormal. And I know there's a bunch of 40 year olds out there who struggle with their egg quality. So you had mentioned in this video, and I don't want to be, I don't want to spoil it. So I'll let you do it. Um, are there certain things to be mindful of for egg quality that improve egg quality, stimulation protocols that might improve egg quality? Um, so there's a lot of stuff that goes into egg quality for sure. Um, I'll start before I jump into answering your question. I want to just so that everybody who's listening knows it's not just about the stim. It's a lot about your general health. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Are you using marijuana because you need to relax or you need it for your anxiety or whatever the case is? All three of those total disaster. Like we don't let our patients use any of that stuff. Are you loaded up on vitamins? Have they checked your vitamin D? Are you taking melatonin? Are you on coenzyme Q10? Um, are you taking DHEA? Like there are so many little initial steps. Is your diet right? Is your stress level low? Um, have you considered yoga or acupuncture? All these kind of holistic things that people don't think about, but actually can play a really important role. Um, because the more you're relaxed and the more your body is relaxed and the less inflammation you have, the better off you're going to do. So I really believe in a very holistic approach to things. I'm not the guy that just pounds people with medications and says, show up for your egg retrieval. You know, we want you to really feel good about yourself, good about your body. And so we focus a lot on how to approach this from a really holistic, healthy standpoint. From a stimulation standpoint, um, there are studies that actually show that taking really high levels of the, the gonaleph and the menopure, the gonadotropins, can actually be detrimental to egg quality and definitely to the quality of your lining. So if you're going into a fresh embryo transfer, which I generally don't recommend, um, and you've been taking huge doses of medications, that's a really bad idea because your lining is has been exposed to these mega doses of drugs and it's supercharged like on fire. You know, embryos don't want to be placed right next to the fire. They want to be in a nice, cushy, comfortable, perfectly, you know, neutral environment. So, so those patients, you know, you need to be extra careful with. So, you know, like I said earlier, when you do a, a natural cycle IVF stim for patients sometimes, the ones that did terrible with lots and lots of meds, they'll make gorgeous embryos. And even with just one egg, it, it works. I'll, I'll tell you a great story really quickly. I had a patient here who's had really weak ovaries and she was a bit older and she came to me and she said, I want to do IVF, um, you know, and I know I only have one egg, but I want to go ahead with the one egg. And I said, yeah, great, let's try it. So we, we made one egg, it turned into a beautiful embryo after we had previously failed with a full stem. 
We made one egg, we got it, we turned it into an embryo, turned into a beautiful embryo. I popped it inside her. She had a 10 pound kid from that one. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Two years later, she's like 40 or 41. She comes back. She says, I want to do it again. I said, you know, it's it's going to be pretty hard now. You're very close to menopause. She said, I know, but I'll never feel good if I don't at least try. I said, as long as you understand the risks, I'm good with going ahead. We tried it again, same thing. We managed to make her one little egg. We grew that egg into a beautiful embryo, popped it inside her, another nine pound kid. And she had the perfect family, boy first time, girl first time. It was beautiful, it worked out flawlessly. So it really does work for people sometimes because some people's eggs, and again, it's all about individualizing, they just don't respond well to taking tons and tons of meds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for for those who have a hard time with their protocols or something, that might be an option for them, or at least they can kind of discuss it with their people, whoever their team is, to say whether or not um, this is something that they could try. Um, so that's exciting. Yeah, and you do need to advocate for yourself because you got to remember that fertility centers are often profiting from selling you the drugs. So they have a vested interest in telling you, well, you should take a little more, right? And so, you know, again, that's where individualization and and ignoring the financial component is so important for the doctor. Because if I want to do what's best for you, I can't do that if I'm thinking about how much money I'm making, right? I got to do it based purely on what's best for you. And so sometimes that means less drugs and that that's tough for, you know, a, a business to do, but it's important for a person to do, for a human being to do for someone else. Um, I have a few submitted questions. So yeah. um, let's try some of these, some of these you may have answered already, but I'll let you reiterate. Um, best protocol for DOR. Um, so I'm going to say based on my experience and a little bit based on evidence, um, you should be on letrozole. That's been shown to improve the outcomes. Um, and then I do believe in using the microdose flare. In my practice, that seems to give us the best chance. Uh, so yeah, if you've got DOR, I will, I will start with the microdose flare. If I see that you're not responding that well, you're still only making two or three eggs. We actually drop the doses down and go for more of that mini stim. Cause if you're only making two or three eggs and you're on, let's say 300 of, of total gonadotropin use, 300 units, you're actually going to do the exact same thing on 150. So I actually drop the the dose down. I save the patients a ton of money. We still get the three eggs. They turn out to be very nice. And again, sometimes less is more. So not giving the patient tons of meds can make the egg quality better in certain cases. So it's worth a shot. Okay. Um, Best protocol over 40 with mild endometriosis, AMH 0.64, how to prime to get synchronized eggs? Um, Okay, so priming, you can use anything except for birth control, because if you have weaker ovaries with a low AMH like that, you do not want to use birth control. It'll suppress you. Again, we get the sleepy ovary, so you don't want the sleepy ovary. They're hard to shake awake again. So, yeah, I mean, I would go back to probably doing the letrozole microdose flare. I would make the embryos. No one with endometriosis should ever have a fresh transfer. That drives me nuts. 
So endometriosis is an estrogen dependent condition. You feed it estrogen, it grows like crazy. You rob it of estrogen, it shuts down for a while. So what do you need to do? You need to avoid putting it in when you've actually maximized your estrogen levels, which is in the middle or the end of an IVF cycle, right? Because right when you trigger to release those eggs, you've reached these crazy high estrogen levels and they're way above normal. So you're literally standing there in front of the fire, just squeezing the kerosene can, or gasoline can, you know, throwing fuel on the fire. That's insane. I've never understood why any fertility center would do that. So what you do is you make your embryos, you freeze them, you then either get surgery, which I still actually support, unlike a lot of fertility places, or you need to get suppressed for three months. And suppression means you wanna shut down that endometriosis. You need to rob it of the estrogen. So to do that, you gotta take something like Lupron, the GnRH agonist, for about three months, plus letrozole. You gotta do both of them together. The combination has actually been shown to be beneficial and then when you go to do your embryo transfer, number one mistake made by loads of fertility centers, they go ahead and do a garden variety protocol, right? Here's your four milligrams of estrace, take it three times a day, put it in vaginally, all of a sudden you've got these sky high estrogen levels again. Well, what was the point of doing the frozen embryo transfer? The whole idea is to get the estrogen levels low. So you wanna use letrozole instead of estrogen, and use the least amount, like the absolute minimum amount of estrogen necessary to get your lining to the right thickness. And in a lot of people, you need none. And in some people, you need a little bit, but you don't want to give them these huge doses because you don't want to activate the endometriosis. You want to keep it super quiet. Mm-hmm. Do you ever do that? Is it the Receptiva DX? Is that is that the one or? Um, yes, the Receptiva DX is a test um, that's available. Um, they claim they can distinguish by virtue of this protein called BCL6 uh, that you have endometriosis. Um, it actually doesn't work, so I don't support it. Mm, okay, yeah. good to know. Um, recommended protocol for DOR, low MH, FSH normal, responded poorly to antagonists. Yeah, so again, that's a great option for microdose flare, or maybe consider doing uh, a natural or a mini stim. Okay. Um, th- like I said, there's a lot of 40 year olds listeners. So, 40 year old AMH of 1.24. Yeah. So, it sounds like they make a decent amount of eggs. Yeah. Which, which, what protocol would you use for that? So, one thing that's important for everybody out there to remember is there are different units for AMH. There's nanograms per mil where, you know, 1.24 is like reasonable. It's maybe on the lower side, but it's reasonable. And when you get under one, you start getting worried that the ovaries are getting weaker. And then there's picamoles per liter, which is, you know, you're looking for a level under five and then you're worried that the ovaries are getting weaker. Um, So I don't know which units those are, Um, but again, anyone with, you know, a lower ovarian reserve. Um, You don't want to do the long protocol. You you don't want to use birth control pill. So you want to use either your natural start or, you know, you want to be on something for priming, estrogen, DHEA, testosterone. Those are all great. 
And then you also want to do either the flare protocol or you want to do an antagonist protocol. And again, there are studies, and we actually just reviewed it on our show a couple of weeks ago, that shows that using letrozole in those patients actually improves your outcomes. So we use letrozole the whole time during the stimulation. You'll see a lower level of estrogen because the letrozole is blocking the conversion of the estrogen, but you get really good egg quality out of it. Hmm. Okay. Um, here's another interesting one. Uh, at what point do you change protocols? 39-year-old, two rounds, nine blasts, one normal. Do I do the same for round three? Um, so Sigmund Freud once said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. <laughs> so I try really hard to, uh, you know, like micro dissect every single protocol and see what could I do better than I did last time. So it's actually very rare for us, for me to tell the patient, just do the exact same thing again. Because in my head, I'm saying, you know, if we did so well the first time, why am I doing a second cycle, right? Obviously there's something I could have tweaked, something I can do better. So we always try something different um, it may be adding in a higher dose. It may be adding in the human growth hormone. Um, it may be changing something in the lab. So for example, there are lab things you can do that have nothing to do with the protocol. Adding in um, Nupagen, which is GM-CSF, into the culture media can make a big difference. There's something called ionophore oocyte activation. It's a technique that your, your embryologist needs to use to activate the eggs that can make a big difference. So there are things not necessarily related to your STEM, but related to the lab where they can facilitate getting you a better outcome by doing these little tweaks and these little changes. So yeah, I rarely do the same thing twice in a row, because like I said, in my head, I'm saying, well, if I did so well the first time that I should duplicate it, why is there a second time, right? That doesn't make sense. So yeah, I, I would always advocate for making sure that your fertility specialist spends the time needed to make sure that they are doing the very best for you each time. And usually there's little things that can be tweaked. Mm -hmm. um, let me see here. This next one, I think it's interesting. I'm not sure that I know this, but um, I don't know if this question is coming from within the U.S. or not. Uh, why are there so few labs making fertility IVF medicines? Are there labs that make their own medicines? Oh, no, no IVF labs produce their own medicines. There are three global companies mainly that produce the overwhelming majority of the fertility meds. There's Serono, which is the biggest. There's Fairing. And then um, there's a little bit made by, um, gosh, I don't even use them that often. So the, I think they're now Abbott. Um, so Abbott is the other company. Uh, I think they've gone through several transitions. So I think it's now Abbott that's the one that's making some of the other stuff. But essentially, Fairing and Serono are the biggest two. And they have the overwhelming you know, majority of the global business on this stuff. So most people are getting their drugs from them. Um, why are there so few? Um, these are multi-billion dollar companies. You know, you can't just wade in there and compete with them. They're already so far ahead of you. And 
And the other problem is, as I'm sure many patients who are listening know, you got to fight with your doctor just to get them to measure your progesterone level, let alone, you know, change their protocol or change the medications that they're comfortable using. Fertility specialists are extreme creatures of habit. And we don't like change unless you can absolutely prove to us it's going to be successful. So if, you know, Mr. New Guy comes in and says, hey, I've got this great new drug, all of us are like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to adopt things because we're very, very protective of our success rates. And unless your success rates are not good, you're going to be very reluctant to try something new. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, as an IVF patient, I'd be like, look, I'm spending, I don't know, let's say we're in the US, 15 to 20 ish thousand right. dollars on a cycle, right? right? I'm like, wait, so you want me to try this new thing? <laughs> Is this going to work or not? Because I'm dropping this amount of money right. and I I need, I I can't say assurances because we know that there's no such thing in IVF as a guarantee. But I'm like, I'm going to need some data to help me like buy into this thing because I'm investing a lot into my cycle. And I don't know that I'm prepared to sit, like try something new without, you know. Yeah. And I mean, it, I, that that's so true. And, you know, you're vulnerable because you're emotionally vulnerable. You're biologically vulnerable because of what you're going through. You're, you know, psychologically vulnerable. And Lord knows you're financially vulnerable. Right. And then there's the, you know, that's not even touching on the fact that there's this huge knowledge and education gap between us as trained specialists and the patients who are walking in going like, why isn't my body working? And here I am like computing yes. dosages and physiological changes, yes. and stuff like that. Right. So, so, you know, it's so easy to take advantage of patients, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And and kind of get suckered into the the drug company who says, oh, just try our med. It's great. We're going to give you a big discount. You can sell it for more, whatever. Yeah, well, you're not necessarily doing the best thing for the patient. And it should always be about the patient, right? So, you know, we're really, really reluctant to change our meds. I have a great protocol with the meds that I have. And when we introduce any new med, Uh, I need scientific proof that it works or I'm not going to let you be my guinea pig because that's just woefully unfair and and in my mind immoral to patients. And and I like to go to sleep at night saying I did the right thing every day. So, you know, being immoral is not high on my list of activities for today. (laughs) Yes, yes. And, you know, as a patient, we are grateful for that. Um, okay, the next question is protocol for someone who responds, responds super quickly to meds seven days and follicles at 20 plus. Oh, you know what? That's a brilliant question. So thanks for asking that, first of all. Um, so that's really important. Uh, we reviewed this on our show years ago. Um, if your stim is less than eight days long, you will not do well. And if your stim is more than 12 days long, you will also not do well. So there's, a, there's this really narrow sweet spot between eight to 12 days where you really want your egg growth to be in that range. So if your eggs are getting there too quickly, you can either use something like letrozole, which sometimes will slow it down, um, or you can use birth control pill ahead of time, which also will slow it down, um, or you use less meds. So they might be giving you too much. 
So you got to remember that the, the lead egg, the biggest egg, it has the most number of receptors for the gonadotropins. So those receptors kind of soak up all of the drug that you give and that, you know, egg says, woohoo, I'm going to win the race because it goes tearing ahead of everybody else. It's like, you know, a turbo boost or something like that. So, you know, if you reduce that amount of drug you're giving, it can't jump ahead of all the other ones and it slows things down. Same thing with birth control pill. Basically, if you're getting ready too early, it means your egg started developing even before you started your period. So it means your cycle's a little bit out of sync. And in order to restore the synchronization, you can just take birth control pill for a month and it'll set you back to where you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, next one is, uh, can your eggs get fried from using too much stimulation medication? Yeah, so you know, we kind of touched on that earlier when we were talking about the high doses. Yeah, there is some evidence that your eggs can get fried if you use too much stimulation medication. So um, you don't ever want to be on super high doses of meds. It just doesn't help anything. And you'll typically find that those patients that are getting blasted with meds, they're going to make three eggs. And there are plenty of studies to show that if you don't blast them, you only give them 150 or 225 instead of 450 or 600 they're still gonna make two or three eggs. So what's the value of doing that? It's just, you know, you're, you're paying the drug companies, you're not helping yourself. Mm -hmm. So how do you know when your eggs are fried then? Like, how do you know? Yeah, that's the great travesty of IVF. You don't know until you actually get them out. So unfortunately, you know, that's horribly, horribly unfair to the patients. And I wish I had a workaround for that, but no one does. We don't know until they're out and we look at them under the microscope. So if let's say they're poor quality one cycle, then maybe the next cycle you can like taper back on the meds a little bit and say, hey, can we maybe try this next time to see if that changes my egg quality or anything like that? Yeah, you know, you should come and work for me. That's actually what I do. Um, <laughs> that's exactly what I do. Like if I look at it one time and say, wow, I gave her a normal dose. I mean, we never use like super high doses, but if I gave her a, a high dose or a, or a you know medium high dose or something like that, and she just didn't respond well, my go-to the next time is let's drop the dose. Let's try natural. Let's give her vir virtually nothing because you might see that there's this huge difference. And those are the patients where that individualized care is so important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, this is, I think, a really good question. Uh, what is the best way for me to partner with my doctor in creating my protocol? Oh, boy, I'm going to throw, um, you know, 99% of the doctors under the bus here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, all, all physicians uh, have a tendency to feel that we went through loads of training, um, you know, 17 years after high school. That's what it took me. Um, so, you know, we all kind of feel like I studied a lot. I took all these exams. I passed all these exams. I've got a million, uh, you know, degrees and this, that, and the other thing. Um, I need people to listen to me. And I, I very much don't have that personality disorder, thank God. But it's actually really hard to find docs that are willing to listen and collaborate. Most of them don't want to collaborate. They want to kind of say, I know what's good for you. Just trust me and listen to me and, and this will work out fine. 
So um, the best thing you can do is actually find a doctor that listens. So, you know, fine. If you're in the US, I'm happy to take care of you. You're welcome to come to us. We're easy to get to. If you want to stay with someone in the US, there are doctors out there that are fantastic and that will listen to you. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to name names, but there are great people out there. You mentioned Amy. Amy is phenomenal at listening, right? She's she's wonderful at listening because she listens to people. She hears them. She's thinks to herself, what's best for this patient? And that's why I said we're philosophically aligned because I do the same thing and she does the same thing. And, and that's what people need. Yeah, no, 100%. When I was 38, my first fertility doctor was already talking about donor eggs. And I was just like, I'm not ready for that. Like, I don't even, can you explain even why? And I didn't quite understand it. So when I went to Dr. Amy much later into uh, when I was 40, it was just like, yeah, sure, no problem. We can keep trying with your own eggs. And I'm like, oh my gosh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is so great. Absolutely. Patients need education. They need, they need information. They need education and they need choice. Right. That's that's the most important thing I can do as a doctor is to explain, educate and then let you make your own decision. I should not be deciding for you. I'm not in your head. Sure. I'm happy to give you information. I'm happy to give you advice. I always tell people if I were your big brother or I was your husband or whatever the case is, you know, I would do X, Y, Z. And I'm happy to tell people that. But it shouldn't be me that makes the decision because your values are different. Your psychology is different. Your journey is different. I, I can't put myself in your shoes no matter how much I may want to. Yeah. All right. Last question. Sure. Can you talk a little uh, can you talk a little bit about the mid luteal phase protocol? When is that preferred over a day one start? So that's basically doing duo stim without the first stim. So um, if you've done poorly with a follicular stim, you should try that. Like no other um, issues with like, say, um, I don't know if you have like uh, lower follicle counts or high follicle counts or anything like that, that doesn't change that. Um, I would probably argue that if you have a high follicle count, it doesn't make sense. If you have a low follicle count, you're probably going to want to capitalize on getting both. So you kind of need that follicular and that luteal. Um, so, you know, it's few and far between where we tell the patients, let's just do a luteal phase. But again, um, it's another option that you can present to patients if they didn't do well with the follicular stim. So instead of saying, hey, I gave you your meds, you only made two or three, none of these were normal, let's go to natural or let's go to donor. You can say, hey, do you wanna try a luteal phase stim? Maybe you will benefit from getting those eggs because they are supposedly better. Um, so that's, that's not an unreasonable option and, and we would certainly consider that. Duo stim is supposed to be back to back. So you do your follicular stim, you wait five days, you start your luteal stim. Um, there is one huge glitch in it, which is that sometimes it gets really hard to tell which ones are new eggs that are growing uh, and which ones are the ones that you already sucked out. Right. And so if you can't tell the difference, you might be going back in just to suck out the same eggs that you already sucked out before and they're empty. 
So we actually do something called a split duo stim, and, and I actually called it that, I don't think it exists, but what we do is we'll do your follicular stim, and if you have a few too many eggs for me to be able to really tell which ones are the new ones and which ones are the old ones, we'll just say, you know what, we're gonna wait till next month. We follow your natural cycle with no meds. When we see your lead egg get to like 18 millimeters, we give you your HCG, you release the egg, we wait five days, we start your luteal stem. And you actually get more eggs doing it that way too. So it, it's actually worked out really nicely for us and that's, that's something we've really enjoyed doing. It doesn't cost us a lot more. We, we charge the patients an extra couple hundred dollars, that's it, just because there's more monitoring for the first half and the second half. Um, but it works out great for the patients and so they love it. Yeah, no, that's great. That's actually a really good way for some people to maybe try and see if they can get a little bit more, especially like like me, low MH, that sort of thing. So yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Um, okay, so tell me about your show. When is it on? How can people find it? Uh, so it's on on Tuesday nights, eight o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Um, probably the easiest way to find it is on YouTube. If you just search DR Victory for Dr. Victory, um, we're on live there. Um, we do tend to chuckle and laugh quite a bit because uh, Tarek is always making me laugh. He's off camera, but I'm always laughing because of the guy. So uh, we do answer questions live. Um, so people from all over the world, like we get people from Australia saying, hey, you know, it's uh, it's early morning here. Um, we have some questions for you. So it's a really fun kind of time. And um, people throw all sorts of crazy stuff at us. And I got to be quick to answer. So uh, you can watch us there. We're also on Instagram. It's rahivictory.md. Um, Twitter is Dr. Rahi Victory. And Facebook is Victory Reproductive Care. So we have like a different name for each thing, unfortunately. But um, uh, YouTube's the easiest way to watch us there. Okay. And then if they want to come see you for a consultation or if they want more information from you, I'm, I assume you do telehealth visits and things like that. How do they connect? How do they reach out to you and schedule those? Yeah, you know, it was probably the only good thing about the pandemic was that we were able to really go worldwide virtual. So I talk to people from all over the world every day. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's really easy. You just write to info at drvictorydrvictory.com and just say, I want a consult and they'll set everything up. Um, we're really inexpensive for America. It's it's one hundred and fifty dollars Canadian. Um, which is, I think, about $100 or $110 US. Um, I spend an hour with you on the phone. I want to know everything about you, every single thing about you, about your partner, about your journey, what you've done so far, how did it work out? And then I spend a lot of time figuring out what's right for you. Uh, and I never throw people into treatment. I always tell everyone, like, rushing through IVF is a really good way to make the doctor rich and a really bad way to be successful. Taking a little bit of time to make sure that you're doing it right is worth 10 times what you're gonna get out of hurrying through it. Mm -hmm. And so um, if, if someone from the US were to come see you, how does that work? Do we, like, do you do monitoring at your local city and then they just come to you retrieval for retrieval or how does that work? 
Yeah, it's super easy. We just have you monitor at a center near you, show up for your egg retrieval, come back for your embryo transfer. It's, it's really, really easy. We've had people come from the Virgin Islands, from Europe, uh, Spain, Russia, Japan. I mean, you name it, people are coming here. Andorra, um, pretty much all of Europe comes here all the time, South America. Uh, so it, it's, you know, it's been great and all over Canada and the U.S. So um, we've got a lot of people coming from New York, from California, some from Texas, Indiana, Michigan, obviously, because they're right next door. Yeah. So yeah. I, I hear this rumor and I don't know if this rumor is true. but uh, So if, let's say, because you're in Canada, then would the medications ship from Canada? I hear they're cheaper. <laughs> Yeah, we can ship medications from Canada. It's um, it's thirty percent cheaper here. Oh, it's so huge. interesting. Yeah, it's a huge. And it's the same, right? It's the same medications that we'd normally get. Identical. There's not a speck of difference. The rumors are true. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh, I need to start ordering meds from Canada then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, it's way cheaper here. The problem is you must be the patient of a Canadian doctor yeah. for us to prescribe for you. Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You covered so much today. Thank you so, so much for being here. I'm so grateful. Thank you. I, I love this. This was great. It was a really great opportunity, and I, I hope people find it useful. Um, thank you for having me on. I am uh, thrilled to be here. And if I, uh, if I can ever be of more help, don't hesitate. I'll, I'll be happy to come back on and answer more questions. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm like already writing the message. <laughs> so open up your calendar. It's Mara, right? Is it it's Mara? Mara? Who's your, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have like a line of emails already ready for Mara. Like once a month, we're just going to like knock it out. We're just going to keep keep this thing Absolutely. going. <laughs> it sounds great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, I will see you again soon. And I'm so, so grateful. And I can't wait to watch your next Factor Fiction. Thank you. Uh, Tuesday at 8 uh, Eastern Standard Time. Yes. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Have a great night. Thanks. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes, and I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.